0: Well, this uh, Easter season is unlike anything I've ever experienced, and I would suggest uh, and suspect it's probably the same for you. Uh, I know I, I've said it before, and we'll say it again, that, that in the midst of all of this, I, I hope that you are looking for and, and noticing the good in things around you. I, I don't know about you, but it is really easy for me to get fixated on, on fear and anxiety and not knowing what's coming and what to expect and, and trying to adjust to a, a, a new schedule of life and, and figure out what's going on, and it's, it's hard. And it's hard to, to really see any good at times coming out of a, a global pandemic, unlike anything uh, most of us have ever seen in our lives. But, but we need to keep our eyes looking out for good. Maybe even right now, if you're on our Facebook chat, uh, put a couple things in the comments there of, of things you've seen, uh, highlights you've seen, if you will, from the last couple of weeks of just ways that, that, that uh, there is good showing up. And hopefully those things will encourage one another. I'd love to see how how people and our town and and our our province and and country are are banding together to care for one another. It's a beautiful thing. I'd love to see as well how how innovators are leveraging this new reality to start something new. I've never seen so many in-home or or live streaming products and services suddenly come online. It's been amazing. And I've really been encouraged to see the church uh, step out and be the church always looking for ways to serve and to show God's glory and tell his story. And, and that's our encouragement to, to keep doing that in the days and weeks and months to come. And we will, as, as Trinity Bible Church, continue to, to look for those things that we can be a part of as well. And so uh, keep your eyes open and, and share those things. If you're tuning with us for the very first time, I'm so glad you're here, glad you're with us. Thank you for spending time with us this morning. I, I do honestly really appreciate it. I can't see you in the room with me, obviously, but I, I do go back and I look at, at who was here and it is a tremendous encouragement that you've taken time from your day to, uh, to invest in this time with us together. I would, I would love to connect with you later, either via the chat or email or text or, or whatever else. So let me, let me know you're here. Uh, as I was doing some Bible reading earlier this week and, and preparing for Easter and, and getting ready for this series and this time, uh, I, something jumped out of a text I was reading that, that has really shaped where this series will go. Uh, in John's gospel, he tells us in chapter 6 that, that Jesus was, was going around, he was doing all these amazing, amazing things, and then he, he miraculously fed a crowd of 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and a couple small fish. And then once everyone had, had eaten and was, was full, he sent his disciples out to, to gather the leftovers and they collected 12 baskets of leftover food. Now, uh, Jesus' miracles like this deserve their own sermons, their own series, but, but I want us uh, to look at exactly what happened after everyone's been fed. So if you have a Bible or if you can click on your device to, to John chapter 6, uh, look at verse 14 and 15 and I think it will appear beside me here as well. We read this, when the people saw the sign that that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, the one who has come into the world. Me when i read this uh, the other day was especially being in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic and all that we're going through is is just how many times we want to put our faith and our hope and our trust in something and it may not be as it seems Again, I think we're all very much aware of, of, of so much of what's going on around the world, so I'm not going to recount it here for us this morning. But one of the things that I've noticed, and maybe you've noticed it too, is that, that so many of the structures or, or the things that we've used to or come accustomed to defining ourselves by and, and putting our hope and trust and faith in have disappeared in an instant. The markets have tanked and recovered and tanked and recovered and tanked again. Jobs have disappeared our ability to even get up and travel around the the town or the province has disappeared and of course many for more things when our own personal world or or in this time in when the whole world gets thrown into turmoil i think that we are left with really one question as our foundations get rocked and that question is this who or what is your king What's, what's that thing that you define yourself by? If we're coming out of that John 6, they, they saw Jesus do something for them and they wanted to make him king. They wanted to, to, to trust him, put, put their faith in him because he fed them. And so what are we looking to for that stability? That's the question here. What's that thing you define yourself by? Who, who or what do you devote your time, your talent, your energy, your resources towards? That's that's the thing that we're calling your king this morning. Within our our Christian faith, we would say, that's the thing that you worship. The thing that you devote your time, talent, your energy, your resources towards. Now, in that John passage, by the way, uh, the people were right. When they called Jesus the prophet who has come into the world, they were talking about the one that Moses had promised centuries before in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so, yes, that promised prophet had arrived. Jesus was him, but he wasn't what they expected at this moment. And that's why Jesus slipped away and went up to the mountains to be by himself. Now, we are in the midst of a a similar crisis, I would suggest. Every, Every one of us is looking for something to help us make sense of the world. We need something to answer these biggest questions of life because so many of our answers have been shaken why are we here? Where are we going? How do we, how do we get there? How do we find our meaning, purpose, value, and identity? We're looking for something or to something or someone to answer all of those questions. And John 6, the, the people saw Jesus as a meal ticket in that moment. They saw him as one who could provide for their, their very real and very tangible physical needs. And so they tried to, to, to grab him, to forcibly make him their king, to, to put all their hope in him. So our question is, is, who are you looking to be your provider? See, the problem was they were they were mistaken about who Jesus really was. Well, this morning, I, as we head into this Easter season, I want to introduce you and, and maybe reintroduce you to Jesus the King. Not just as one writer said, the, the moral exemplary Jesus, not socialist Jesus or capitalist Jesus or anti Semitic Jesus or white racist Jesus or revolutionary liberationist Jesus or countercultural cool Jesus, but the biblical Jesus, the one who came into the world to show us God the Father and to give his life as a ransom for the world. So if you have a Bible handy, you can flip. Turn, click, scroll, whatever you got to do to get to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. And that's where we're going to be this morning. Now, uh, Mark is one of four biographies of Jesus that we have in our New Testaments, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of the 16 chapters of Mark uh, that are in this book, it's divided into 16 chapters, the last six are all devoted to the last week of Jesus' life, the first Uh, Ten are are, are for everything else. And so we've got a a week complied complied and and put into six chapters. Some writers have called Mark's gospel a, a passion narrative or the story of Easter with just an extended introduction. See, Mark as a writer rushes us to this last week of Jesus' life, appointing us that this is the most important time and all the while as we head towards this, in those first chapters in those first 10 chapters as jesus starts to describe why he's come and who he's who he is and and what the kingdom's like uh, he seemingly doesn't want people to uh, believe in him as king to trust him as king just yet uh, so many times he says hey i've done this for you don't tell anyone about it theologians call this the the messianic secret of mark and so when you read this book, and I'd encourage you to maybe do that again this week, and if, if you can grab the time, maybe do it in one sitting. Start in chapter one and read all the way through. It might, might take you, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour or so. But as we read this book, we get to see all sorts of glimpses of who this king is. What kind of king Jesus is going to be. And we'll just hit a couple of high points here. Mark starts off his gospel hinting at this, that there's going to be big news in the coming pages. In Mark 1, verse 1, we read that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This was common language in the Roman era. This would have been the way that news was announced when, when Caesar's generals came back victorious. Hey, this is, this is the good news of the, the empire for you. But Mark's kind of taking that language and subverting it, saying, listen, no, this is the real good news about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-promised one, who's not the son of uh, God like Caesar claimed to be, but the son of the real God. A few verses later in chapter one, we see Jesus start his public ministry in verse 15, and he says, listen, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here, it's present, it's with you repent and believe in the gospel in this good news and then in the coming chapters again and i encourage you to read them this week jesus begins to demonstrate what this kingdom looks like we see him uh, heal men with unclean spirits people with unclean spirits He he gets rid of disease, he heals the sick, he cleanses the leper, he tells a paralytic to stand up and walk. He teaches and explains and describes all the Old Testament scriptures. He describes this coming kingdom through parables, relatable stories that that point us to a deeper truth. He calms a storm to prove himself as as being over even uh, nature. He walks on water to do the same thing. He expands this kingdom that he's ushering in to include more than just the Jewish people, but everyone as well. And then he gives sight to the blind as as both a a physical uh, giving of sight, but also a a symbolic, listen, I'm going to show you those who have been blind so far what this kingdom is going to be like. And then he starts foretelling his own death, burial, and resurrection. And all the while, through all of this, until near the very end in, in chapter 10, he tells people, don't tell others who I am. Why did he do this? Why do you think he did this? Why did he, he stop people from telling others about him? Well, I would suggest it's 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 kind of like that John picture we looked at earlier, that, that they didn't see the entirety of who he was yet. Jesus didn't want to just be the physical healing king. He didn't want to just be the, the feeding king, the, the meal ticket king. He didn't want to just be the I've got power over nature king because he had something so much bigger in mind. And so when we get to this text this morning, when we get to chapter 11, we notice a shift. Suddenly Jesus is not just accepting that people were starting to call him king, but he actually leans into that and encourages it by his actions and his behavior. And so in these 11 verses we're going to look at today, we see that, that this triumphal entry, this passage we're looking at today, is an unambiguous declaration that Jesus is king. He's very clear here for the first time in Mark. And so let's look at this text, and we'll see four things about Jesus' kingship uh, in these verses that, of course, expand throughout the Gospels as well. First, we see that Jesus is the one who's always in control. Second, we see Jesus is the one who submits to the word and will of God. Third, we'll see that Jesus is the one who embodies humility for us as a king. And finally, we'll see that Jesus is the one who alone can save us. So first, Jesus is the one who is always in control. Look at verse 1 to 3 for us. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. Now, a couple of things are happening here. We're starting to see Jesus as the the promised king, the Messiah, God become man, the one who is in control of all the details. He sends two of his disciples into town with specific instructions, and they go ahead and they find things exactly as Jesus described. We're going to see this coming in the next couple of verses, and, and this is described more fully in the other gospel accounts as well. But it's also really significant that he is on the Mount of Olives, that he's coming from the Mount of Olives in this moment. Uh, Danny Aiken really helpfully reminds us this, that uh, the Mount of Olives, it's near Jerusalem. It, it rises about 200 feet higher than Mount Zion. Its crest is less than a mile directly east of Jerusalem. It's known, maybe obviously, for its olive trees and its slopes were the path of David's retreat from Jerusalem to escape capture by his son Absalom in 2 Samuel 15. Uh, On this mountain, Solomon grieved God by, by setting up idols for his foreign wives to worship in 1 Kings 11. Ezekiel witnessed the glory of God here in Ezekiel chapter 11. And now we see Jesus, the, the son of David, making his, his royal entry into Jerusalem here in, in Mark 11 and also Matthew 21 and Luke 19 and, and John 12. It was on this mountain as well that Jesus wept over the disobedience and blindness of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. And this would be the place that the disciples would later see Jesus ascend into glory in Luke 24 and Acts 1. This is a significant place for the people of of Israel, for for the, the followers of the Old Testament. And to this point, this was a significant place. Sinclair Ferguson says that Jesus' majesty and his authority began to shine through from the moment of his entry into Jerusalem. And he started here at the Mount of Olives. The second thing we see is Jesus is the one who submits to the word of God. Let me read verses 4 to 7. And so the disciples went away. They got into town. They, they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And when those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So the disciples brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Again, the two disciples walk into Jerusalem. And they find everything just like Jesus said they would. He's in control. So they, they get this colt that's never been ridden on. They, they bring it back up to Jesus. They, they put their cloaks on it, and Jesus sat down and rode into Jerusalem. Now, just like in those first few verses, in these verses, there is a ton going on here. Consider this. Uh, if you're familiar with the Gospels and the story of Jesus and, and have read the, the narratives before, how many times do we see Jesus riding anything? See, unless he's on a boat, Jesus is walking, except for right here. This is the one and only time he rides an animal, and he's chosen specifically a small donkey to be that animal. All this was highly symbolic, and and in the light of Old Testament prophecy and expectation and allusions, these would have set alarm bells off for all the Jewish people around him seeing him do this. The phrase that Jesus told them his disciples to go in and say, if, if someone asks you why you're doing this, say, the Lord needs it. This phrase uh, echoes back when King David and his men were, were hungry and, and fleeing, and they, they, they stopped, and they needed the sacred bread from the temple. And they said, listen, the Lord needs it. We need this right now. So what we're seeing here is that David's greater son is here. Jesus, son of David, rides in on a donkey. He's also declaring his kingship and fulfilling Zechariah 9:9 and, and Matthew 21 and John 12 help to make this even clearer than what we see here in Mark. But in Zechariah 9:9, we read this, a prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. That's a great description for a king, isn't it? righteous and salva- having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the fall of a donkey. See, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing here. He wasn't just all of a sudden tired and said, listen, I, I, I can see something down the hill, go bring that to me so I can ride downhill into town. But his, his whole life was submitted to the word of God. He knew very clearly that he was fulfilling these prophecies he knew that the whole grand narrative of scripture the whole what we call our old testament was pointing to this point right now it all it all culminated with him the whole cosmic redemption plan that god started in genesis three fifteen was was pointing to this moment to jesus and his his life and death and burial and resurrection and all of this was unfolding right now in front of the disciples no wonder elsewhere Jesus said in John chapter 5, listen, to the religious leaders, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, but you're wrong with that. It's they that bear witness about me. If you, if you look at the Old Testament, it points to me, he says. Jesus is the one who is in control, and he's the one who is fully submitted to the word of God, to the will of God, to the work of God. The third thing we see in the next couple of verses here is Jesus is also the one who embodies humility. Look at verse 7. And so they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, he sat on it. And then many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches. Kids, if you've cut out that palm frond and colored it, now is the time to wave it around and, and spread it down here on the ground in your living rooms or wherever you are. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Jesus starts what turns into a parade into Jerusalem on a young colt, deity on a donkey. What a fascinating thing. Again, Dan Aiken helpfully tells us here, this prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 beautifully makes this connection to, to Jesus riding in on a donkey and his humility. This was, again, we read, this was a donkey that had never been ridden before, yet Jesus had no need to break it in. It's like the donkey knew his creator. The donkey knew its master, and yes, Jesus is the one bringing righteousness, right standing with God, and salvation, our, our ability to be saved and renewed back into a right relationship with God. And yes, this king comes humble, mounted on a donkey. This is totally different than what the people would have been accustomed to when, when the Romans came in victorious. They would have come in on a war horse, not a donkey. And so in this moment, the people are trying to, to see what's going on. They start to, to recognize that this is their long-awaited king coming into town. They're celebrating. They're, they're cutting down branches and putting them down as a, as a, a mark of respect and, and a, shot, a sign that, that this is the king coming. Now, Jerusalem these days would have been packed, 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 because it was the Passover, we're told. It was the busiest weekend in Jerusalem, like a, I was going to say a long weekend in Canmore, but hopefully we have some busy ones of those coming up. But the people were all there. They were excited for this festival to begin with, and now they see these Old Testament prophecies coming true right in front of them. They start to put the palm fronds down as a way to welcome and celebrate their king. And yet here we see Jesus do what he hasn't done yet to this point in the Gospels, openly declare by these actions, accepting these actions by the people that he is king. One writer says Jesus with purpose and intentionality presents himself as the Messiah here, knowing full well that it will provoke the Jewish leaders and result in his crucifixion. Nevertheless, this declaration is bathed in humility. The paradoxical kingship of Jesus shines so bright at this moment. He is royalty and deity wrapped in a single person, and yet he moves forward in his declaration to be king in lowliness and weakness and service. He doesn't come in pomp, but in meekness and lowliness. He comes in humility and simplicity. Sinclair Ferguson also helps us uh, capture all that's going on in this moment by saying this. Uh, Think for a moment what Mark's record would convey to those who first read it. Christians in Rome. We've got to always remember the original audience of the text when we come to it. If, If these were Romans seeing a king come in like this, it would have kind of blown them away. He goes on to say, no doubt many of them, many of those original readers, would have seen generals enter Rome in triumph to receive the accolades of victory. And so how stark the contrast between Roman glory and Jesus' humility must have seemed. How mighty and powerful the sword and political power power, by contrast with King Jesus. And yet we know that Jesus' kingdom was established, while the glory that was Rome has disappeared into oblivion. We know that what Jesus did in Jerusalem established a kingdom which would outlast all the kingdoms of this world and break in pieces every man-centered kingdom which sets itself against it. Jesus had come to to take his throne, but he had committed himself to begin his reign from a cross. And we'll see that later this week on Good Friday. Finally, the last thing we see in these verses that we're going to look at this morning is that Jesus is the one who alone can save. We started this morning talking about how we all look to something or someone to save us, to to, to bring us meaning and purpose and and identity. But in this text, we see that that only Jesus can do that. Verse 9, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Now the crowd here, again, they're getting really into this. They're recognizing all that's going on. Their Jewish stories are coming true. All the prophecies are starting to come true. And so what they're saying to Jesus in this moment could not have been any truer, that this is the king, the one that's coming from David. But even still, they couldn't fully understand the significance of all that they were saying. Hosanna means literally, save, I pray. I pray. It draws from the language of Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26 that says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Again, remember, this is Passover time in Jerusalem. The Passover festival and celebration that's that's happening now was was celebrating the, the Jewish people's deliverance from their slavery to Egypt. They were free, they were brought out of slavery and into freedom. And so now they're expecting this to happen again. They're, they're expecting liberation and deliverance from Rome now. Blessed, that they say, draws as well from Numbers 6, 24 to 7, 27. We read, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them, that Numbers passage says. Dan Akin help, again helpfully points out to us here that, that Jesus is the one who will be blessed. He, he comes in the name of the Lord and he's also bringing in, ushering in the coming kingdom of David that had been so long anticipated. That means as they're heaping these praises on Jesus and as Jesus is coming into town this way, he's fulfilling again all kinds of Old Testament prophecies that we're seeing come true in this moment. 2 Samuel 7, we see this throne being established forever. Isaiah 9 prophesied that that unto us a child will be born and and we're seeing that happen here. A little bit later, Isaiah 11, uh, from the line of Jesse, David's dad, a king will come. We also see prophecies in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and and Micah 5, among many others, coming true right here, right in this moment. But these prophecies, they they weren't being fulfilled in the way that the people thought. Jesus didn't come in to overthrow Rome and, and make Israel great again. He was going so much deeper than that. Rather than just deal with their physical realities of being a nation nation under the rule of a foreign empire, Jesus is going after our hearts, going after their hearts. Instead of just coming as a a temporal, political, military savior, Jesus is coming to bring only what he can bring. Righteousness and salvation, we've already read. He came to bring a complete rescue for body and soul. A fulfilling of of God's rescue plan to, to draw humanity back into relationship with God. And he wasn't just coming to rescue the Jews, but Jesus is a savior for the whole world, for anyone that calls on his name and anyone that believes in him. And scripture points us to this so well as well. Look at a handful of places, John 1, 12. John writes, but all who did receive him, all who received him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Of course, a couple chapters later in in chapter 3, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, abundant life, life forever with God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, yet everyone is welcome to come through him. Acts 4, 12, we read, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And finally, for this morning, in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Jesus has come as the only one that can rescue us, the only one that can can free us from our slavery to, to sin and rebellion against the God who loves us and wants to be with us. This is more than freedom against an oppressor. This is more than bringing a massive economic stimulus package. This is more than anything we could ever ask or imagine. Jesus' mission was to come and be victory of of life over death, to bring salvation over sin, truth over error, love over hate, forgiveness over condemnation. And on that day, the people cried out, save us. And though they didn't fully understand what they were asking, that's what they needed. And that's what we need too. So the last question for us today is, have you or are you willing to say the same thing to Jesus? Save me. Maybe you've never thought about this question before. Maybe you're tuning in for the first time and you're, you're hearing some of these things for the first time. Maybe you're, you're looking at the world around you and you're seeing so many of the systems and, and things that you've put your hope in for security and meaning and value crumble in the midst of this current crisis. And maybe you're asking, where is God in all this? Which is a fantastic question. Let me answer that this way. At the the risk of sounding overly simplistic, he is with us. He has come to be with us, to rescue us. He's not surprised by this. God's not madly scrambling to create some sort of contingency plan because somehow we've messed up and there's this virus going across the whole planet. But God is still in control. Jesus is still in control. He is leading and guiding us in the will and word and way of God. Jesus is the humble king, the servant king that came and gave his life for us. Jesus is the only one that can ultimately save us and give us those things, meaning, value, purpose, identity, and true love. If you're not sure about this and want to know more, again, I would invite you to drop a note in the comments. Send me a message to the chat window later. Fire me an email off if you like. I would love to have a further conversation with you about this. I'd also invite you to to find a Bible. If you don't have one, find one online. Bible.com or the the YouVersion Bible app is one of my favorites. And read one or read all of these Gospels for yourself. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. and, And come to these texts humbly looking for answers. And allowing the words to speak to your heart. This is the, the beautiful thing about the Bible is that it is it is living and active. It still cuts to our hearts. It speaks to the deepest parts of us. Maybe you grew up in and around church or, and he- heard about Jesus, but but for whatever reason, and uh, turned away and left disappointed or disillusioned or hurt by the church or Christians. First, let me apologize for the way many have been hurt by followers of Jesus. Sometimes Christians can misrepresent Jesus and push people away. And you know what? Sometimes Christians are just jerks. But let me encourage you not to give up on Jesus because some of the people who follow him have done bad things, horrible things. Pick up a Bible, give it a read. Evaluate Jesus on Jesus, not on people like me who imperfectly follow him. If you've been following Jesus for some time, maybe you just need this as a reminder that, that Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God, that he, is, he has come to, to, to make us look at our lives and, and Jesus asks us to do the same, to, to repent, to turn, to head towards him and, and believe in the gospel and to be reminded that Jesus is in control and he, he's humbly leading us and serving us, that he's come to save us. So maybe that, what you land in one of those three spots or others this morning. Now, listen, Jesus coming to save doesn't mean that right away we are going to be free from hard times. That is not promised anywhere in here. But what it means is that he is with us in this and through this. It means that we're a part of a growing kingdom of God in this life and into the next. It means that, that we have the opportunity to be who we were created to be, that we were, uh, have the ability to be drawn in and, and made heirs of Jesus, that we're grafted into the family of God so that in the midst of this chaos and and turmoil and anxiety and fear, and in the midst of the next chaos, turmoil, anxiety, and fear, we can know that we follow a king that is in control, that is submitted to the word of God leading and guiding us still, a king that embodies humility, a servant leader that gave his life for us, and one that came to save. Let me pray, and then I'll invite Arnie and Marty to come lead us in another a couple of closing songs. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for this opportunity we have to, to gather and maybe uh, slow down a little bit and listen to your word speak this morning. Jesus, thank you that you are the king that is in control. Thank you that you submitted to the word of God. Thank you that you lead us. Thank you that you came as a humble king, that you came as a, a servant leader that, that gave his life for us. Thank you that that when we look to you, we can see the visible image of an invisible God. We can see uh, who God is by how you acted, how you related to God, to others, to creation. Thank you for coming and living a a perfect life, uh, perfectly obedient to God the Father. Thank you that you came as that prophesied king who, who brought righteousness and salvation, who brought the rescuing work. As we head towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we thank you that you we're willing to submit to God and go to the cross to take the punishment for, for all my rebellion, for all the ways that I've gone my own way and turned my back on God. And you died for those. And in your death and resurrection, you conquered our three greatest enemies in Satan, sin, and death, so that we can cling to you and you, we can, can have a, a, a way into relationship with God that you have traded your righteousness for our sinfulness, and so we can be called children of God. Thank you for all these things. Thank you that continue to speak and challenge and draw us to you still.